This is uh, our uh, Christology Sunday School, um, second to last one. Christology is just the study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And uh, we started, I guess, uh, 60 weeks ago in eternity past and saw how uh, God the Son is the Word. So God tells us everything he wants to tell us about himself through Jesus. He's the Word. Uh, and so if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And then we talked about how God, when you, look at, when you start with God, you, re, you see that God is a Father who loves the Son through the Spirit, that he's a trinity, three persons, one God. And then we spent the last three weeks looking in at the doctrine of the incarnation that 2,000 years ago, God the Son actually takes on human flesh. And so he is, at one moment in history and forever since then, truly human, truly God, united in one person. Uh, and we ended uh, with basically the death of Jesus um, and so uh, now what we're going to do is we're going to look at his um, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Because the reason we look at the ascension of Jesus, actually, that is actually where we are in history. If you want to know where it, like, what is the Son of God up to right now, it's, it's he's the ascended Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. Uh, so we're going to look at that. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, uh, anytime we start looking at your eternal Son... Um, I think you delight in that because you love looking at your son and delighting in your sons. Would you uh, help us not just to understand, uh, but to be drawn to praise and to trust uh, and to delight in uh, Jesus. Uh, it's where real life is. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, so uh, first, uh, we're going to look at the fact that Christ uh, is buried. And again, this, this technically... The incarnation, we talked all about his humiliation. This technically is still part of his humiliation, but you'll see how much it blends into his resurrection. So Christ is buried. Here is uh, Westminster Larger Catechism. Wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death? Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day, which hath been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. So Jesus, the God-man really dies on a cross. His heart really stops beating. It's a human heart. His brain waves really cease. His lungs dispense of the last bit of oxygen, and he has a real human body and, and, uh, that dies. So what happens to Christ at the moment of his death? All right, well, we said, right, Christ is the God-man, which means he has a human body and a human soul. A reasonable soul is what we talked about. So the soul is the unseen part of us, of humanity, that makes us uniquely us. The soul is, right, the human psychology of emotions, mind, and will, what the, what the Jewish person would have called the heart. And so at Jesus' death, his body, his heart, his brain, stopped, right, stops working, and then immediately his soul departs from his body and goes into heaven. Heaven, right, is not like up there somewhere. Heaven is God's space. It's the unseen, if you want to say, dimension or, or place that absolutely interacts with this one. Uh, but that's where his soul goes. So Herman Bavink says, although in his soul Christ was in paradise, right, because he looks at the thief on the cross and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. How can he say that unless his soul goes there? Um, 
In his body, he lay in the grave, and thus in the interim between his death and resurrection, he was in the state of death. So, this is what we read here, uh, right? Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath. They rested according to the commandment. So scripture and actually a lot of the creeds that we say, like the Apostles' Creed, they emphasize that Christ was buried. Why is that? Why is it important that Jesus' body is wrapped and placed in a borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea on Friday, before Sunday, right? Friday's the sixth day. And then his body lays in the grave uh, lifeless until Sunday morning. Why is that so important? Three things. First, maybe this one's obvious, but it shows that he really died, which we're going to come back to why this is really important. But Jesus didn't pass out on the cross. He didn't like swoon and faint. Death fully came on Jesus. It really came on Jesus, and he really died, and the burial shows that reality, okay? But secondly, and you realize that uh, Luke hints at this, the burial of Jesus is important because of the Sabbath. Okay, this is interesting. I'll hit more on this when we talk about his resurrection. But if you go back to Genesis 1, when God speaks through his word, right, what we're saying is Jesus, remember God's the word, he makes everything in six days, and he rests on the seventh, enjoying all that he made, right? And so in the calendar, in the Jewish calendar, what that meant is that God first made the world by his word, Jesus, on a Sunday, let there be light, and on Friday, God looks at all that he makes, basically says it is finished, and enjoys it, and then rests on Saturday. Okay, well, Jesus, the word, the one who's bringing about the work of salvation and the new creation on the sixth day, the same day that, that, that God, through the word, finished the work of creation on Friday, he's on a cross, and what does he cry out? He cries out, it is finished. He finishes the work of salvation, the work that's going to bring about the new creation. So he finishes that work, and they make sure it happens before Sunday, before the Sabbath uh, starts. And then his body rests in the grave because God rested, awaiting the first day of the week, the new creation, the resurrection, when everything will start being reversed again. So his burial in the grave is signaling that, that the finished work of salvation has happened. There's nothing else that has to be accomplished by Jesus to make us right with him. He has done it which is why salvation is receiving his work, not doing our own work. And then he rests, awaiting the, the new creation that's going to begin. And then third, the burial is important, again, because I think we, I can't remember if we said this last week, two weeks, we, I quoted this church father to make me sound smart, Gregory of uh, somewhere. And he said, uh, he said, whatever is, is not assumed is not healed. And what he was trying to get across is that Jesus has to, if anything is broken by the fall or anything that's, that has sin or shame, the only way it's going to be healed is for Jesus to take it upon himself and heal it by his own life. 
Okay, well, the reason the burial is important is because what what death finally does, the the final disintegration that it does, is it separates the soul from the body. And that is not the way things are supposed to be. God made us body and soul. That's why, that's why, this, that's why the burial is part of Christ's humiliation. Because anytime that a soul is separated from the body, it is not the way things are supposed to be. That's the disintegration of death. God made us body and soul. God made tr- Jesus, who is truly human, body and soul. And at death, those separate. And so that is like one of the final corruptions of sin, is separating the body and the soul. So remember, what is not assumed is not healed. And so Jesus even assumes death to where his soul is separated from his body and he's buried so that he can heal it. Right? Um, I, heard, I can't remember who I heard this from this week. Somebody uh, said that if you think about any kind of injury, for an injury to heal, it has to be undone. So if, you know, if your son scrapes his knee, that has to be undone with time uh, by a scab. If you have trauma, that has to be undone with therapy and things like that. Death must be undone by Jesus taking it on himself. And you know this. If you've ever seen a body that is without a soul, you know that it screams this is not the way it's supposed to be. It doesn't matter how much makeup we put on the body. You realize that body body and soul is supposed to be together. And so Jesus takes death completely on himself, so his body is buried, and it goes to Sheol, the place of death. All right? So that's the burial of Christ. And then the exaltation of Christ starts. He's resurrected. Early on Sunday morning, on the seventh day, Jesus' soul reunites with his body, and the person of Jesus is transformed, body and soul. So think of it like this. Um, there's all seminary professor used to put it this way. Think if you had just like, you know, a 60-watt light bulb that you use like in a lamp or something. And let's say you plugged it. Trip Ferris used to work with nuclear reactors, I think. Let's say you plugged a 60-watt light bulb up directly to a nuclear reactor and turned the nuclear reactor on. What would happen to the light bulb? It would absolutely be obliterated from the inside out. So much power would channel through that that it would explode it from the inside out. Am I right, Tripp? Thank you, Tripp. Um, so, when Jesus' soul re enters his body and his heart starts beating and air enters his lungs and eyes open, it explodes death from the inside out. Death bit off more than it could chew with Jesus because he is eternal life. And so Jesus walks out of the tomb with the same body, right? That body's not in the, in the tomb, but it has been transformed into a glorified body and soul, actually one that Paul would call a spiritual body, not because it's not material, because it's fully empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he just, he just explodes it because life has more power than death. Jesus took everything that sin has done, all death. He took it on himself, all that decay, all that corruption, everything that's dehumanizing, and he explodes it into a new and better life. So again, if, if when we look at Jesus, we see that God is a father who loves the son by the spirit, then look at the tomb. There's, there's the beloved son's body laying in a tomb. The father loves, that, loves the son too much to leave, to leave Jesus there. New life 
new creation, a new work has decisively begun by God's word on, on, uh, on that Sunday morning. And through a man, this is what's interesting, the God man, the second Adam, life explodes onto the scene. And there's, there's it's crazy how much the, the um, first interaction that um, Mary has with Jesus is a lot like Adam in a garden. This is what uh, G.K. Chesterton points out. Look at this. He says, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder, but even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of new creation with a new heaven and a new earth and an assemblance of the gardener, right? She thinks he's a gardener. God is walking again in the garden in the cool, not of the evening, but of the dawn. We're back in Genesis 2, but better. It's a new garden. A human being, yes, the God-man is now walking in a garden again, resurrecting new life, ruling over all things, but now there's no more threat of death for him. There's no danger of the serpent to wreck it all. He is the firstborn from the dead, as, as Paul says. So after the resurrection of Jesus, so he, again, he is truly God, truly God and truly man, now resurrected and glorified, what does Jesus do? Um, Acts 1, look, I love, I love what um, Luke writes Acts. He says, this is how he summed up what Jesus did in the 40 days after his resurrection. He said, he presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I love that. That is so realistic. What would it take for you to believe that somebody was resurrected from the dead? Uh, it would take him appearing to me many times and proving himself to me, right? Because I think if I saw it the first time, I'd be like, was I on drugs? <laughs> like, what happened? You know, but it, that, like, it's so realistic that many times, multiple time, ways, he keeps appearing and showing these flesh and blood. He ate with them. They, he let them touch him. They could hug him. And what you start realizing is Jesus leaves a, it's the same body but glorified. He, he leaves a different impression on, upon people after his resurrection rather than before. Not just because he's back from the dead, but because there's a, there's a new transformed humanity. Some people saw him and were afraid. Some people bowed down and worshiped him. Some people didn't immediately recognize him. But right, when he resurrects his friend Lazarus from the dead, that's just a resuscitation of Lazarus' former life. There's nothing different about Lazarus. Lazarus is going to die again. But Jesus is transformed after the resurrection so that his body no longer simply belongs to this earth as it is. It's a heavenly body, actually fit for the new heavens, new earth, which we'll talk about next week. He's walking on this broken and corrupt, corrupt earth with a glorified spiritual body that's been raised. And the resurrection, again, we could spend multiple Sundays on the resurrection, but a couple things. When you look at the person of Christ and the resurrection, what that means, right? And this is what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still are, you still are in your sins. The resurrection of Christ is what declares and affirms and brings the verdict that your sin has absolutely been paid for if you've trusted him and that death has absolutely been defeated and Satan has been defeated right? If, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sin. Okay, so think about this. Uh, you know, like, 
especially over Christmas time, uh, Walmart always has those workers by the door that if you, if you walk with a bunch of big stuff, they want to see your receipt, right? And um, I, for some reason, I always get nervous in that moment. Like, like there's something in my cart that I don't have a receipt for, right? And so they start looking and they'll see, you know, whatever this like, I don't know, something, this big power wheels that you brought for your kid, right? You realize as soon as you show them the receipt and they see power, they see power wheels, they're like, boom, you can go. It's been paid for. If it wasn't there, if you don't have it on your receipt, actually, I don't know what would happen to you. I guess, I don't, I don't know what would happen. You would not be able to leave Walmart, right? Again, we talk about the death of Jesus on a cross a lot. We should. Paul says he preaches Christ crucified. But I'm not sure we talk about the resurrection enough. Because when Jesus dies on the cross, yes, he says he is finished. He's bearing, he's bearing my sin. But if he goes into the grave and never comes out, how do you know if your sin really has been paid for? How do you know if his death really was enough? How do you know he's not still paying for your sin? But when Jesus burst out of the grave, it's the receipt. It's paid for. It doesn't, I don't care what you've done. And I don't care what you will do. Jesus took it upon himself and blew it apart by his resurrection. It is complete forgiveness. So that the resurrection really does mean this. When your conscience accuses you, and it will, when Satan accuses you, when those, things, when, when those things get brought up in your past that you've done and, and you still regret them, and you start thinking like, okay, I, I must not be a Christian, or I've got to make up for something that I've done, the resurrection says stop. The receipt has happened. There is no more shame. There is no payment you have to do. That, like, it is a, just an objective fact of history. And I have to learn to listen, I have to learn to, for the, re, the death and resurrection of Jesus has to be more real to my heart than Satan's accusations. And that is hard. <laughs> because my guilt and my shame and Satan's accusations feel really real to me. But this is more real. Um, and second of all, the resurrection means death has been transformed. Death is still a reality, it is, until Jesus returns. And we'll talk about that next week. But he really did change it. He blew it apart by his resurrection. Or Paul says he took the sting out of it. So it has now been transformed for you if you're in Christ. Um, Donald uh, Barnhouse uh, was an old pastor at Tenth Prez a long time ago in Philadelphia. His, past, his wife passed away pretty early from cancer. And he was trying to think about how to talk to, about death to his boys and what happened to their mom. And they were actually on their way to the burial in a procession. And this large truck passes by their car. And this, so this huge shadow passes over their car, right? And Donald, the dad, says, okay, boys, did you sense that shadow? Did you feel how it went dark? And they're like, yes, dad. He said, okay, let me ask you this. Would you rather have the truck itself hit you or the shadow hit you? They're like, dad, the shadow. He said, exactly. He said, Jesus got hit by the truck of death so that now all that hits you is the shadow. It's real. It comes over you. It's sad. It's worth mourning. It's not the way things are supposed to be, but it's a shadow, and it actually ushers you into the presence of Jesus. And that is how he has transformed death. And then the other thing is the resurrection shows us, again, and we're going to say this a lot next week, because he is the God-man, truly God, truly man, Whatever happens to Jesus is going to happen to you if you're in him. 
And so that's why 1 Corinthians 15 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, remember first fruits, whatever happens to that fr first fruit, the seed of that, the same thing is going to happen. So the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man, came, that's talking about the first Adam, right, where the first fruits of Adam, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall, made, all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then is coming those who belong to Christ. So his real, resurrected, transformed, glorified spiritual body and soul is exactly what is destined for you. Exactly. Uh, and you can read more in, in this chapter, and it then they start asking, what is that body like? And he starts talking about what the body is like. That it's, it's, it's the same as like an acorn in a tree. Same substance, but magnificently different. Um, and so the resurrection, those 40 days after, was a, he was preparing his disciples for him leaving, which I'm about to talk to. But it was also the display that our sins have been paid for, that death has been transformed, that's been defeated, and has a guarantee of what is going to happen to you at the resurrection if you're, if you're in him. Okay? But he, he, he was preparing them for him leaving. So Christ is then ascended. Okay? Um, Luke 24. This is the end of the Gospel of Luke. This is Jesus talking. He says, Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. He's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So after those 40 days where his resurrected, transformed body is, is on this earth, walking around, eating, meeting, teaching, all those kind of things, he lifts up his hands, he blesses them like a priest would, or like we do here, right, uh, at the benediction. And he's carried up into heaven. Again, heaven is not like spatially in another place. It's God's space behind the veil. We can't see it, but it is God's space that is absolutely interacting with this world. And he enters there in his body and soul. So that, right, Hebrews uh, eight. Now, the point and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, talking about Jesus, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, Hebrews 9.11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, this is talking about heaven, not, not, with, uh, not made with hands, that is not part of his creation. For Christ is not entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So the ascension means he enters heaven at the right hand of God the Father. So what is the person of Christ doing right now, February 19th, 2023 at 10, 19 a.m.? He is at the right hand of God the Father in body, soul, as our king, priest, and prophet. So John Owen would say it's a fundamental article of faith that Christ is in the same body in heaven wherein he conversed here on earth. So much so that the dust of earth is upon the throne of the universe. Think about it, like the dust of earth is upon the throne of the universe right now. That's where he is. Which means, again, just a couple applications, that means that Jesus is in the heavens right now as your priest. So we sing this quite a bit before the throne of God. This is what it's talking about. When we think see before the throne of God, we're talking about what Christ is doing right now. It says, before the throne of God, I have a strong and perfect plea. 
a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thus depart because my life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. That is priestly language because Christianity is not that you get something called forgiveness of sins or you get something called peace. Christianity is that you get Christ and you're in him and he is in you. That is why, that's why Paul can say these astounding things like in Ephesians Colossians where he says, you are seated with Christ on high. What am I talking about? I'm like standing behind a podium in Oxford. And you are so in him, written on his hands, he's representing you that you are with him in the heavens before God too, at the same time. And so in the same way that in the Old Testament, a priest would take the... the, the sacrifice of a pure lamb into the holy of holies, right, the presence of God, and would, would stand there on behalf of the people, that's saying that is a shadow, a shadow of what Christ really does, where he brings us in his bloody sacrifice and all of us with him into the presence of God. So sometimes, sometimes we forget, I think, because of our Protestant tradition, if you're Protestant, it's not that we don't believe in priests. We, we absolutely have to have a priest. We have to have a mediator. It's just his name is Jesus. You cannot be before God on your own merit and on your own standing, but you can be before him in Christ because he has done it all. And that Christ is interceding for you, filled with concern for you, pours out prayers on your behalf into the ear of a loving father, and as a king who is running the world on your behalf. And again, it's not that, remember, Jesus says, when you see me, you see the Father. So it's not like he's having to convince the Father to be loving to us. The heart of Jesus is the heart of the Father. Poured out for you. Which means he has compassion on you. What is the Lord of this universe doing right now? He's ascended into heaven on the throne of the world, having deep compassion for you. Thomas Goodwin Puritan from the 1600s, he wrote this book, little book called The Heart of Christ in Heaven, right, towards sinners on earth. And he wanted to show this fact that Christ, for all of Christ's heavenly majesty, seated on the throne, he's trying to convince you that he is not aloof and unconcerned about believers' needs. He says he's still the same man with the strongest affections for his people like he, like, as, as, in the same way that he walked on earth. But he said, if anything because his body's been glorified and transformed, his heart beats more strongly than ever with tender love for his people. And that is why we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, no matter what's going on in our life. Because what he said, this is what Goodwin says, is that two things stir the compassion of Christ for you right now in heaven. One is our sufferings, our afflictions, so those things that are going on in your life that disrupt, uh, disrupt your life, that bring sadness and sorrow, that stirs the compassion of Christ right now, and he's interceding for you. And then the other thing that Goodwin points out, unbelievably what stirs the compassion of Christ, you know what it is? It's our sin. 
He says, having experienced on earth the utmost load of pain, rejection, and sorrow, Christ in heaven empathizes with our sufferings more fully than the most loving friend, and, he, and our sins move him to pity more than anger. He says, yes, his pity has increased the more toward you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loath, loathsome disease. <clears throat> his hatred, uh, yes, will fall upon the sin to free you of its ruin and destruction, but his bowels shall be more the more, more drawn out to you. This as much when you lie under sin as under any affliction. Therefore, what shall separate you, uh, what shall separate us from Christ's love? Because what he says is you're a new creation if you're in Christ. Yes, there's still sin, but that sin is not the real you anymore. And it's causing affliction and suffering in your life. Does Jesus hate sin? Yes. But if you're in Christ, he looks at it on the same way that we look at, look at, look at when sickness starts, uh, starts destroying people that we love. It actually brings out compassion. Um, and I, I just don't know if, if you're like me, that's not the way I think. When I sin, I want to run from God. But the heart of Christ towards, towards sinners is one of compassion. He is inviting you to come to him with even the disease of sin, and he will meet you with mercy. Um, he'll meet you with grace. And that just makes... It makes all the difference when you feel like your heart is cold towards Jesus. You realize his heart is not cold towards you. Um, so it means, uh, another theologian said this, it means that there is now a man, a real man with our flesh and blood, our experiences of the world, our humanity in heaven. A man now sits next to God in perfect harmony and a man with a human hand will grasp us as we make our, our way into heaven upon death. We shall be greeted by the face, the human face of Jesus. Pretty incredible. Uh, so that also ascended, he is a king. Um, I'm just going to read it here. It talks about, for God has put all, all things in subjection and under his feet. And it, then we'll go on to talk about how all those things, when Christ returns, which we'll talk about next week, will finally be gone forever. But it's the language that when he ascended, he sat on a throne as a ruler. And so this, this is what Michael Reeves says. The son of Mary, the adopted son of, of a carpenter, sits now on the throne of the universe. The victory he won on the cross is now paraded for all to see. He disarmed the powers of evil, and the man now stands, no longer a victim to the serpent's wiles, but a true king, utterly victorious. He really is enthroned. Look, I, I, don't, I, I don't know how to... Is Jesus, is God always omniscient, omnipotent? Is he always king? Yes, 100%. And at the same time, something decisively happened at the resurrection and ascension that it, I don't know how to say this without it being heretical, <laughs> but that his power, or, okay, let's put it this way. Satan's power was absolutely weakened at the cross and the resurrection. So that now the, the, the ruling and reigning of Christ is being experienced and felt in a way that it never has before. Let's put it that way. Because think about how many Christians were there in all of the Old Testament and at Jesus' resurrection and ascension. I mean, at Jesus' resurrection and ascension, it's, I think there's like 120 standing around. I'm not saying there's not more than that. But Jesus looks at Satan and John, and he calls them the ruler of this world. And this is this world. That when Adam sins, this world falls into captivity of Satan. But Jesus, and, and people are still being converted and that kind of stuff, but there's a reign of darkness that is happening. But when Jesus is resurrected and ascended and sits on the throne, 
that rule above Satan has been so diminished and weakened and broken. We are, you realize we're 2,000 years later. Do you know how many Christians there are? Millions upon millions. It has expanded to the ends of the earth because he's the king. And nothing's going to stop him. And even the things that Satan keeps throwing and even death and these kind of things, he is such a king that those things are simply carrying out his plan to redeem the whole world. That's how much he is ruling and reigning, which, which means, and I'm not, saying this, that, I'm not saying this doesn't take away pain or hurt or all that kind of stuff, but it really does mean that nothing touches us that doesn't first come through the hands of King Jesus. He's that sovereign, and that creates tons of hard questions, I know. But he's at the throne ruling and reigning, and he is our priest. Um, I think uh, it's 1029. I'm going to end there, see if you have any questions. We'll pick up next week about what it means that he sends the Spirit, because the other thing is, where is Christ's body right now? Here, here, yes, it's, it's ascended into heaven. You know where else Christ's body is? You are Christ's body. <laughs> the Holy Spirit dwells in you, making you and I like Jesus. So the way that people experience Jesus now, through me and you, which is kind of scary because sometimes we don't reflect him that well. But we'll talk about that next week. Any, any kind of questions on the resurrection, ascension, or burial? Yes, Miss Jenny. <laughs> So there, there are some traditions uh, uh, that think that. So I'm not saying you're like unorthodox if you believe that. Uh, but our, our, our tradition has said, no, because when he says it is finished on the cross, that is the final suffering payment of our sins, that hell took a location on a cross and he took the wrath of God. And that was finished. But he does go into the grave uh, so that his body, I mean, you are right in the sense that he is, he is resting in the place of Sheol, of death, because that is, that is what we deserve. That's the separation of body and soul, and he does take that upon himself. So, but our tradition is not that, there are some that say, okay, that, then he, he goes into the place of hell itself, as in, and kind of preaches the gospel there, and there are traditions that say that, not mine, but anyway, good question. Does that kind of answer your question, Jim? Okay, thank you. Anything else? Yeah, and that's, oh, I hope I can go back on this. Uh, right, right, it, he's under the power of death till the third day, which has been otherwise expressed, he descended into hell. So it's talking about his body is still under the power of death, um, is what our catechism, our tradition uh, says but that his soul is absolutely, um, he's, not, he's not paying for sins anymore. So. What's the connection between that and the Hebrews? So, um, like, you mean like when we say it in the Apostles' Creed or, or right there? So, we, we are saying, <laughs> so we are saying, we are saying that Jesus really did experience hell on a cross. He absolutely did. Uh, because hell is what I deserve. I deserve the wrath of God. He was forsaken by God in my place. And hell, that word literally means uh, uh, Gehana. It's, it's the place of the dead. And so even in Jewish thinking, the body went into Sheol, which is the realm of the dead. And it's just using that language to say that his body really, really was dead. <laughs> um, it, really went, it really went to the place of burial. So, good.
Time for one more if there is. Yes. Like how how does this uh, uh, in arithmetic add up to three days, three nights? Yeah, so because um, the way that they count count, right, it's still Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, and so right, there's so those is three days. Um, because they were just said he died on Friday, right? Friday, Saturday, and then he and then resurrect on Sunday. So on the third day. He rose again. That's right. It's not saying it's three full 24-hour days. All right. That's right. So, okay. 1033. Uh, I've gone a little over. We will finish up next week. Thanks for being here.